We are in Ephesians chapter 1, and uh, man, we have got an epic passage today, so let's just dive right in. So last week I mentioned how much I love the beauty of Western North Carolina, how it's amazing to live here and to see everything from the foothills to just the sweeping, uh, the sweeping beautiful nature of the Linville Gorge. Um, I love it. It's something that I've loved about moving back home and it's been getting back into the mountains, going hiking. And so right after I moved back to North Carolina, I had this itch to go hiking again. And so I, uh, again, I had been in Missouri for 12 years, and so coming back home, it was exciting for me to be able to go hiking and get back in the mountains. So I decided that I was going to head up into the Linville Gorge. And so for me, as I drive downtown every day, I see Table Rock sitting over downtown, and to the right of Table Rock, you see Hawksbill. So growing up, I had been on Table Rock a ton, but I'd never been up Hawksbill. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go. I'm going to do it. It's going to be a lot of fun. And so Josh, who was just up here talking, him and his wife, Catherine, moved with us from Missouri to help start this gospel-centered church here in Burke County. And I, I was like, you know what? It's time. I'm going to get Josh up on the mountains. We're going to see the grandeur and glory of God. We're going to be scheming and dreaming. It's going to be amazing. And so we loaded up and we made the trek to the trailhead. And here's the thing. We heard that the hike was a little bit strenuous, but um, that was a lie because it was really strenuous, at least for me. All right. So here's the thing. Um, Here's the difference between Josh and I. So you guys just saw him. Josh is young. He's spry. He's a former athlete. And so we're going up the trail and here's Josh. He's just hoofing it. And then there's me and you see me and, you know, you you get it, right? Like it's not the same, right? It's not the same. So Josh is just beelining it for the summit and I am struggling. I am just having a really, really tough time. And so finally I beg Josh to stop so I can do this thing that I love to do called breathing. Um, And he, he graciously stopped for a second. Let me catch my breath. And finally, finally, we make it to the summit. Now, here's the thing. Right before you get to the summit, this is the thing. If you've never been on Hawksville, you're like, well, Billy, maybe you're just out of shape. Yes, but right before you get to the summit, the trail literally just does this, right? It goes from like, oh, we're just going up a trail to straight up. So you actually have to climb a little bit to get there. But as we get to the top and we see it's unbelievable. I mean, it's breathtaking. If you've never been on top of Hawksville, you have this incredible panoramic view of both the Linville Gorge, you see the Blue Ridge Mountains out in the distance, and then you look over and you see the valley, and you know just sweeping down into that is the Catawba Valley. You can see a little bit of Morganton. It's incredible. And there's something about being on top of a mountain, right? There's just something about how spectacular it is. The air is fresher. It's a little cooler up there. And I, I look around, I hear the waterfall I hear the Linville Falls just this flowing. I I see, you know, a beautiful, I don't know if it was a hawk or a falcon. I'm not very smart. So it's just flying across and it's it's serene and it's pristine. And I'm just, I'm taking it all in. I swear a single tear just fell right down my cheek. It was, it was amazing, right? It was beautiful. And I look over and I'm like, Josh, are you seeing this? Isn't this great? And I look over and Josh is like this on his phone. And I'm like, dude, what are you, what are you doing? Why are you on your phone? Look in front of us. He's like, hey man, calm down. I was taking a picture. Not a big deal. Anyways, you ready to go back down? That's what Josh said to me. Now, it took a lot of restraint for me not to you know, slap him because, are you nuts? No, I'm not ready to go back down. I died almost getting up here. I'm not ready to just come up here. Now that you've got your grandma on, we're going to just hop back down the mountain. No way. We're going to stay here for a little bit. So Josh and I went back and forth, and sure enough, we ended up staying for another 30 minutes or so. 
Now, I know that's silly and it's kind of funny, but here's the thing. I think this is actually what we do with the glory of God. I think this is what we do with passages like this. See, what happens is you and I, we come to sermons like this. We we come to passages like Ephesians 1. We do the hard work to ascend the passage, right? I can make sure that I exegete the text faithfully to get us to the summit. But here's what I think happens. I think we get there, we see it, and then it's on to the next thing, the next task, the next meeting, right? I think something's wrong with that. I think we need to start this sermon series in Ephesians off Right, because we're at the summit of God's grace and we can't just snap a photo and head back down and go back to our normal lives. I think we we need to stop for a minute and ponder the grandeur and the glory of God. See, in Ephesians 1, we see from the Apostle Paul that we are to grow in our knowledge of God and marvel at the grace given us in the finished work of Christ. We're to grow and marvel grow and marvel. We immediately, we set our minds on the Father. And the temptation for many of us is to just do church. And we end up doing church, serving God, doing ministry as a means. What what do I mean by that? I mean it like this. A means is a way that we would gain God's favor, a favor that was already given us in Christ. We think that we'll gain his favor if we do enough for him. And that's backwards. That's not accurate at all. Paul immediately grabs our attention, right? He pulls us to see the union that we have with Christ, right? It's like me calling out to Josh to to stop looking at his phone and trying to go back down the mountain. Stop for a second and see the splendor of what God has done. We're supposed to stop here for a moment and see the glory of God. We need to set our hearts to praise the triune God who's given us so much in Jesus. Straight off the bat, Paul's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, and he just starts gushing. He just starts talking about all of these incredible blessings that God has given us. He can't help but just speak of what God is doing. And so we see what he has given us. We see first this, that we've been chosen by the Father. Look again with me at verses 3 through 6. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Friend, believer, you were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. We say that again. You were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. And this choosing, this election was secured through Jesus Christ. And its purpose isn't because you or I are lovely, but for the purpose of his praise and his glory. Now, here's the thing. When we hear words like this, when we hear words like election and predestination and sovereignty, what we often see is people kind of tense up a little bit, like they're a little uncomfortable with that. But that shouldn't be the case at all, because again, These are Bible words, right? These are biblical words. These words should instead inspire awe. They should inspire worship. The idea of God 
choosing a people to display his glory, it's not a new concept. The Bible is a book of election. God chose to create the world for his glory. God chose Abraham to bring blessing to the nations. God chose Israel to be a light to the nations. Jesus chose 12 disciples to bear fruit and multiply. And Jesus also chose fools like me and you, right? 1 Corinthians 1 verses 27 and 28 say this. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Here in Ephesians, right, as well as in several other New Testament passages, we read that God chooses people. He chooses individuals. This choosing is what we call the doctrine of election. Here's a really helpful summary of this doctrine. It says this, election is the gracious purpose of God according to which he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and it is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. Now, if you're thinking that was a lot of big words and that read like a theological statement, it is. Um, it's, from, it's from a theological statement, right? Here's the idea, though. This idea that God has saved us, those big words like regeneration, that means he's made our heart new. Justification, sanctification, glorification. You've been saved. You're being saved. God's changing you. He's shaping you. Sanctification, you will be saved. You'll stand in glory before him. Glorification. This whole concept is that God is doing something, that he has chosen you to work in you. And some argue that, hey, this, this choosing, this election, what it's talking about is a corporate choosing rather than an individual choice. And listen, there's certainly the idea painted in Scripture of the corporate purpose of salvation. But that argument doesn't really work here. While God does in, indeed choose a corporate body, right, the church, we have to remember that this corporate body, the church, is made up of individuals like you and me. In fact, our passage speaks really specifically to individual experience. It talks about redemption, forgiveness, sealing, and belief. These are all individual experiences. So election isn't this either or concept, either corporate or individual. It's a both and. God chose a people for himself, and that people is made up of believing, redeemed, forgiving members. And I want to say this, I get that this is a difficult thing to wrap our minds around. Anytime you talk about God's choosing, God's election, it's really difficult. People disagree and have debates on it. And I want to confess here, there is a great mystery in the doctrine of election. There just is. Our text talks about what God was doing before the foundation of the world. That's pretty mind-boggling, right? That God has done something before the foundation of the world. So he's talking about his eternal secret purposes. And, he, and recognize this. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God is doing something here. And we have to admit there's mystery, right? There is mystery here. God is God and we are not. Deuteronomy reminds us that the secret things belong to God. And here's the deal. We can disagree about the finer points of this mystery, 
and we can still fellowship and serve together. We can. We can come to this, we can sit down, we can talk about this and go back and forth. And at the end of the day, none of us know the secret things. None of us can fully comprehend and wrap our minds around the mystery of God's choosing. One of the most helpful ways I've heard it said is this. It's difficult for finite creatures with three pound fallen brains to comprehend how this doctrine relates to God's love for us and his impartiality, as well as how it relates to his sovereignty and our choice. But... Coram Deo, we should be okay with mystery. We should be. Encountering mystery should be a cue to us that we should be worshiping. While we are affirming this mystery, we need to look at the attributes of this choosing, right? So he starts off, he's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, and he starts just going off about how God the Father has chosen us. But listen to how he says he's chosen us. We see first that it's, it's loving, right? It's loving. He chose you as an act of his divine love. We read in verse, the end of verse 4, the beginning of verse 5, in love he predestined us. In love. The second thing we see is that he's sovereign. And we see this everywhere. God electing you is the expression of his divine control over all things. Listen to the language in this text, his favor, his good pleasure, his will, his plan, his purpose. In our chaotic world, what a deep comfort it is to know that our God is in control, right? I pick on Daniel all the time because he's been rebuilding a car of his, and it is just a lesson in that this world is broken and fallen because the car didn't work. He's like, I'm going to spend a lot of time. I'm going to work on it. Took him forever. Felt like everything was going wrong. Wrong part was sent. This thing happened. Next thing you know, car's finally working. Engine's going great. Someone backs into him. I'm not kidding. It's really funny and also tragic. It's this concept, right? Anybody who's ever had a car, it's, I think it's God's message to us to remember that he's sovereign and the world is broken because cars just never seem to work the way we want them to. But in, in our chaotic world, is it not a deep comfort to know that our God is in control? Man, but not only is he loving, not only is he sovereignly in control, he's gracious. He's gracious. He chooses us as an overwhelming display of his grace. Listen, there's nothing in you, there's nothing in me, there's nothing in any of us that says we're worthy of his choosing. So what's the goal of this election, this choosing? It's that you would be a holy child of the living God. He writes elsewhere, Paul does, that he says we're earthenware vessels, jars of clay. What he means by that is we're the bad stuff that you don't bring out for company. You know, we're the cheap plastic cup that you've had for 10 years and should throw away. That's us. That's what we are. And God chooses to pour into us his glory and grace so that when that cup cracks, when that cup breaks under pressure, what shines out is his glory, his presence. And what is claimed about us is that we are his. We are his kids. Look again at verses four and five. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So listen, that that concept that you and I have sometimes, that broken concept that if we do enough, if we serve hard enough, if we do enough ministry, then God will be happy with us. When we read texts like this, we realize how broken and foolish and how much this text smashes that idea. Because ministry, serving, it does not make you holy. Serving doesn't make you a son or daughter of the living God. Only God can do that. 
And God desires that we would know him and that we would believe. See, often when we get to to passages like this, when we get to texts like this that talk about God's choosing, his electing, we think that, okay, well, that excuses personal belief. It's not, we don't need to tell anybody about Jesus. God's just going to choose who he wants to choose. That's not the case at all, right? What, What does verse 13 say? It says this, look again. It says, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. God's sovereignty doesn't negate human responsibility. It doesn't. Election and faith belong in the same sentence, but it's only a sentence that God could write. Listen, some of us, we get the wrong idea about election, right? And it shouldn't cast doubt on us whether or not all are welcome to come to Jesus. All may come. One of my favorite authors, Dr. Russell Moore, he says it really well. He says this in his book, Adopted for Life. He says, God is not some metaphysical airport security screener waving through the secretly pre-approved and sending the rest into a holding tank for questioning. God is not treating us like puppets made of meat, forcing us by his capricious whim. Instead, the doctrine of election tells us that all of us who have come to know Christ are here on purpose. Our invitation should be come to Jesus. And when you come, thank him for drawing you in. See, this, this thing is, is that the doctrine of election, what it actually does is it fuels gospel advance. When we believe that this is true, that God is the one who chooses, that God is the one who saves, it should encourage us. Because that means that you and I, when we speak the gospel, people will actually respond to it. Why? Because it's not based on how great of a communicator I am, how clear and articulate of a theologian or apologist I am. It's based on, is God at work? When Paul is facing one of the most challenging, most difficult contexts I can think of in the church in Corinth, which if you don't know what I'm talking about, like there was all kinds of mess going on with the Corinthians. Like one dude was sleeping with his mother-in-law. It was a mess. The whole church was broken and difficult. Paul's going into this city that's pervasively grotesque, awful, difficult. And he's thinking to himself, how am I going to do this? Jesus speaks to him in a vision and says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. And catch this. This is before he's gone there. This is before anybody's responded to the gospel message. He says, I have many in this city who are my people. Here's the deal. When you speak, when you share the gospel, some people will actually believe the gospel. The hardest of hearts can be converted because evangelism, that is us sharing the gospel, it's not about our presentation, but about the power of God to save. And this should make you and I fearless. We should assume that because God is sovereign, he has put us, he has placed us where we are for the purpose of seeing others come to Christ through our faithful proclamation of the gospel truth. That means that your job with your neighbors, in your context, whatever that may be, God is the one who can work through you, no matter how inarticulate you may be. What this passage is primarily about is God's activity in salvation. You see, we believe that it is God who saves people. We're going to read later in Ephesians that we were dead in our sins. We were dead in our sin. 
You know what that means? We didn't resuscitate ourselves. I don't know about you. There's never been any dead person I've seen that's just popped back up to life other than Jesus. And so that means that you and I, we have to look to Jesus because Jesus is the one who pursued us. He's the one who regenerated our hearts. He's the one who leaves the 99 and pursues the one. It's his effectual call. Our election is in him. We are chosen in the chosen one. We're not chosen for anything good in us. God accepts us because he put us in union with Christ. Here's the thing. Sometimes we will encounter people who really believe in this, who are hardcore about the doctrine of election, and they're pretty arrogant, right? Maybe you've never met a grumpy Calvinist, but I have. If you embrace this doctrine, but you walk in pride, then you've not accepted it properly. The idea that God chose you chose me. It should put you and I on our faces in worship to the sovereign, wise, loving, gracious, and mysterious God who has chosen us in Christ. I love the thoughts of Charles Octavius Booth. He was a Baptist pastor who was born into slavery. He came to faith in Jesus in Alabama at the end of the Civil War. Just drink that in for a second. Booth, he, he writes this excellent handbook on theology in, in the 1800s. And in 1890, it came out. It was for his African-American congregation, and it was called Plain Theology for Plain People. And he has this quote, and it reads a little like it was written in 1890. So track with me for a moment. It says, if we ask why they were chosen and others were left, we find that no answer to the question has been given by him who can alone explain his, his reasons. It becomes us then to rest content with what it has seemed good to him to reveal, trusting in God's character. We should feel as did Abraham when he said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Let us therefore bow reverently before him saying, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Of this we may be perfectly sure that God's election gives no encouragement whatever for anyone to continue in sin or pride. May God's choosing lead us to worship and humility. Listen, this, this afternoon, if, if this doctrine befuddles you, if you're perplexed by it, if you're just confused, that's okay. You're in good company. You're welcome to come and talk to me. I'd love to chat with you about it. I'd also recommend just two resources that are really helpful. One is a book called Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. Really excellent book. Another one that I like even more is a book called Proof by Daniel Montgomery. Both of these deal specifically with God's sovereignty and our, our decision, our choosing, how it all works together. So we see here first, God has chosen us, but he keeps going. He keeps going. He says next in verse seven and eight, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So we, we see first this, that we have been chosen by the Father. And now we see second, that we have been redeemed by the Son. We've been redeemed by the Son. This is the call of the gospel, that Christ has redeemed us. We have been liberated from the bondage of sin. Jesus has taken all of our sin, past, present, and future, and he's nailed it to the cross. The idea of redemption, it's this idea of liberation, of freeing us from bondage or imprisonment. It takes us back to Israel and Egypt and their deliverance from slavery. 
Paul says in Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14, he says, He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This means that God has rescued us and he's transferred us into the kingdom of Jesus. We're no longer walking around in the kingdom of darkness. We have redemption. But this redemption comes at a cost. Verse seven tells us that it was through his blood that we're redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And we can be redeemed from the penalty of sin and from the prison house of sin, but it's not cheap. Our freedom cost Jesus his blood. He took our place. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. And because of this, our sins have been forgiven. Here's a really helpful story for us to help kind of capture this idea of redemption. There's a story about a little boy who was building a lot of different models. Got really into it, was really excited, loved it. Decided he was going to build this huge boat. It's the first time he had ever done it. So he starts working on it. He follows the instructions to a T. He paints this thing. It's beautiful. Sets the sails and at the end decides he's going to carve his initials in the dock. Loves this boat. Super excited about it. Tells his parents he's going to take it to the lake and see it sail. Puts it out on the lake, watches it sail, and he's delighted by it seeing this boat move and flow through the water exactly the way he had hoped for it. Well, as the day dwindled, it was time for him to go. And so he wades in the water to get this boat. And just then a gust of wind comes in and catches the boat. And he sees the boat float further and further away. And he swims after it to the point where he realizes he can't go any further. Goes back on shore. He's dismayed. Can't believe it. He lost his boat. (laughs) Goes home, tells his parents. They say, well, maybe you can save up and get another one. And He thinks to himself, I guess, a few days pass and he's walking downtown. He walks by a secondhand store and he looks in the window and he sees it. It's his boat. There it is. He goes inside and he picks up his boat. and It looks just like his boat. And he looks and there on the dock, it's his initials. It's his boat. He found it. He puts it under his arm. He starts to walk out the store. And right as he's getting ready to go out the door, the shop owner says, whoa, where are you going? The kid looks back and says, well, this is mine. It's my boat. I built it. I made it. Shop owner said, "Mm, that's my boat. He says, no, 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 look, these are my initials right here. I made this boat. He said, well, son, that may be the case, but if you want it now, you're going to have to pay for it. You see, someone brought it into me and sold it to me, so it's my boat now. The kid was really discouraged, decides he's going to leave, do everything he can to get this boat back. So he works, saves his money, goes back, and he finally buys back this boat that was his. And as he leaves, he tucks the boat under his arm, he pats on it, and it says, now you're twice mine. First I made you, and now I bought you. If you ever think that you're not worth much, if you think you're cheap, just remember what God thinks of you. He thinks you're his child, twice his. First, you're his because he made you. And second, you're his because he bought you on the cross. He paid a price to redeem you. Friends, see this redemption. See this exchange. Jesus gives us his very righteousness and he takes all of our brokenness, all of our guilt, all of our shame. Guilt means I've done wrong. Shame, I am wrong. Redemption smashes guilt and shame. 
Our guilt is cleansed by the blood of Christ and the infusion of his gift righteousness. That means when you stand before God, God doesn't look at you and see all the broken things that you've done, all the lies that you've told, all the people that you've manipulated and hurt. God sees his perfect, holy, beloved son, Jesus, because his righteousness is like a cloak covering you, his blood washing you clean. Shame is laid to waste as we are given a new identity. We are now wholly adopted sons and daughters of the living God. The problem is you and I, we attempt to, like I've said already, make ministry, our service to God, a means We fall into this pattern of living our lives, serving in the church, telling others about Jesus, and we do all of this to merit something that we already have. We have to look at the spiritual blessings that we have in the heavenly places. We have to fix our eyes on Jesus. Redemption is our means. Something I think we have to remember is that we don't work to earn favor, but that we work out of favor. Let me say that again. We don't work to earn favor, but that we work out of favor. That's because of this idea of gift righteousness, because of this transformative new identity, right? Because God has done something for us. It's now our good pleasure, our delight to work for him. We don't work to earn something that we already have, right? Just in the same way that I'm not going to try and prove myself to be my mom's son. I was my mom's son the day I was born. I don't have to make that a reality. It's now my delight to follow after the Lord. Even in moments like this where we submit ourselves to a new church that's going to be planted, we, we, we are asking that God would bring glory through us. I think we can get caught up in trying to prove ourselves. But my hope is that you and I, we would set our hearts on Jesus Right now, we would fix our eyes on the cross and we would see the price of redemption. That we would look to the resurrection and see the power that it calls us to live in as a child of the living God and that it would cause us to marvel. If he has forgiven our sins, then we should pour our hearts out in adoration to him. This redemption, what it does is it points us to the mystery revealed We now have the revelation of God in the gospel. It says this in verses 9 and 10, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In this chaotic world, our best laid efforts sometimes fail. Our hopes, our aspirations, they go awry. But God's eternal purpose, his plan, that's certain. Whether this church plant thrives or not, God will unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Listen, history is going somewhere. By God's grace, he's made known to us the mystery of his will. He's revealed his eternal plan. And that plan centers on the redeemer. This amazing plan is that all things Everything would be united to Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And right now, we're waiting. We're waiting for the fruition of this plan. All creation is groaning, waiting for Christ to return. Paradise was lost in Adam, but it will be restored in Christ. 
And while we live in this tension of what we call the already, but not yet, we set our means of ministry. We set our means of trying to the side and we live in the identity that he's given us. And our hearts cry out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Because we know that we've been elected by the Father. We've been redeemed by the Son. And finally, we see this, that we have been sealed by his Spirit. Look at verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we've been chosen by the Father. We've been redeemed by the Son. And we've been sealed or assured by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, he's given to us as the guarantee of our inheritance. In 2017, my wife and I were expecting our first kid. Um, It was so exciting. Um, My wife, Hannah, had been a birthing doula, which is a birthing coach for a a while. She had done 10 live births um, and was so good at it. I would get emails and calls from people who were like, listen, man, I literally could not have done this without your wife. She's amazing. She's incredible. Um, And so seeing my wife finally get to um, not just be a coach, but get to experience this was really exciting for us. We were so stoked that she was going to get to have a kid. And so we sent out the announcement. And in true awesome epic fashion, we had two big slices of pizza and a little bagel bite there, letting people know that our our baby was coming. We were really excited. We went to all the doctor's appointments and visits, and everything was going fantastic. Um, We decided on a few different names. And I'll never forget this day. We went in, and um, because my wife's a hippie, we were going to the midwife. If you don't know what a midwife is, that's because you're living in 2019. Um, that's okay. I'm kidding. But I'm, it's not a silly thing to have midwives at all. It's awesome. So my wife ha- had a midwife and was really excited to have her be there. And, and we were going to have this really awesome natural birth experience. I was learning all kinds of new terms that made me uncomfortable. Um, it was real weird. But we went and uh, we were having this conversation with her. And it was a normal regular doctor's appointment was the first setup with the midwife. We were going to find out the gender of the baby and the next couple weeks, we had two more weeks, I think before that we were going to find out the gender. And just before we left, Hannah says, Hey, I know this is weird, but can I hear the baby's heartbeat? She says, yeah, no problem. They get this device that they kind of put on her belly. And it's, I don't, I mean, if you've ever heard it, it's really weird. It just sounds like a ton of static and then a thump, 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 thump. And they couldn't find it. And so she says, this is weird. It's, it's normal, though. Babies like to hide sometimes. So she goes and gets the other midwife. And they bring in an ultrasound machine. And they start looking. And they couldn't find it. And I'll never forget the words she said. Because it's the worst bedside manner I've ever heard from a doctor. She looked Hannah in her eyes and said, I'm so sorry. You've had a missed abortion, which is the medical term for a miscarriage. We were devastated. This isn't what was supposed to happen. Hannah then finds out that because of the timing of it, that she couldn't do this at home, but it would require surgery. 
we went and she wept as they took her back. And then she had the baby removed. They came and got me and told me that they were worried they might have to keep her because she lost two liters of blood. And we were devastated. Now I tell you all this to tell you this. God has been unbelievably merciful to us through this. First and foremost, and this isn't a point in my sermon, but it's just the truth. You need the church. Don't lie to yourself and think that I'm a Christian. I can go it alone. I know what I'm doing. I don't need anybody else. That's not true. The Bible would disagree with you in every way. You need the body of Christ. How do I know that? Because there were moments where I couldn't sing. But the songs of the saints around me caused my heart to to rise up to my mouth and I could actually sing. There were times when people just showed up and gave us cookies and loved on us. Now, I'm getting off track. The point is this. This is October, which is two things. One, it's Infant Loss Awareness Month and Fertility Loss Awareness Month. I'm probably saying that wrong. This is also the month that our baby was to be born. We named the baby Abner Austin, which means the Lord is a light. And we get to see how beautiful it is that God is redeeming this month for us. Because right now, Hannah and I just became foster parents, and this is the month that we finally got our little girl. She's here tonight. Um, I don't know why, but she's called me dad a lot this weekend, which is what foster kids do, but I can't tell you, I didn't think I would get to hear that. Adoption and foster care is beautiful. It's a display of what we're talking about here. It's this idea that we welcome a child into our home. We give them our name and we love them as our own. And then check this, we leave them an inheritance. This kid who's not ours biologically this kid who belonged to someone else who now lives with us, we give them an inheritance. That's what the Spirit does for us. He guarantees that we have the inheritance of the Father. He gives us permanency. In the world of adoption and foster care, that word is a big deal. It's called permanency. What it means is this. Children lack, they lack security until they have what is known as permanency. What does that mean? It means that they, until they are in a home that is forever theirs, they don't feel settled and right. Until, literally, until the judge like slams the gavel on and says that this adoption is now finalized, kids have restless nights and nightmares, even if they've experienced no other trauma than the fact that they're in, they're in this situation to become adoptable. Until permanency is achieved, they feel unsettled. That's what the Spirit does for us. He gives us permanency. He tells us it's settled. You're mine. You're my child. And listen, earthly adoption, it's beautiful. It is. It's a beautiful picture of what we see in the gospel. But there's something that I can't give to my adopted child, Lord willing, I get to adopt her. And that's this. God gives you and he gives me his own distinct nature. We have not 
only a great inheritance, not only all the riches and blessings, but we have all of the Son. We have all of Jesus's nature. When we pray by the power of the Spirit, the Bible tells us it is as if the words were on the lips of Jesus. That when we pray, we don't have to assume, is this just going up in the cloud somewhere? Is someone hearing me? No, the veil is torn in two. God stands before, Jesus stands before the throne of God, declaring for us, pleading for us. When we stand before the Father, we are declared innocent as Christ's very righteousness has been applied to us. There is a profoundness to the spiritual adoption that has been given us. We have been sealed. We belong to the Father. Romans 8.16 says this, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Listen, believer, you need to know this. God has sealed you. And he will keep you until the day of redemption. He has given you the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of this inheritance that is coming. Many theologians and scholars call the Spirit the first installment of the glory that is to come. It's the idea that God isn't just telling us something about our future, something about someday, but he's making the future present right here, right now. That when we hear this idea that as believers, we are having eternal life. Eternal life is not some pie in the sky someday where we're all naked babies floating around in glory. That's not it at all. Eternal life starts right here, right now, because you and I can experience the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the truth. That God the Father has chosen us, God the Son has redeemed us, and God the Spirit has sealed us. We should worship the triune God. We were made for praise. Our hearts will only be satisfied when we begin praising this God. Listen, I can tell you that in that moment of great loss for Hannah and I, nothing satisfied us. I remember the day it happened, we tried to, I played You Are Sovereign Over Us, and then we drove to the movie theater because I could not go home. I was like, we're just going to watch a movie. And we watched Beauty and the Beast. It was awful. I hate musicals. It was fine. It was fine. And we tried everything, anything to numb the pain, and it wouldn't. The only thing that satisfies, the only thing that gives assurance is knowing Jesus. In this world, you have tribulation. You have pain. If you, don't th- if you think becoming a Christian means that you get to just walk carefree and never have any pain, then you have not read Scripture. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and just see what the Apostle Paul endured, being obedient to Jesus, pain and suffering. But the difference is he takes all of it and he makes it totally meaningful. He gives every ounce of pain and suffering purpose and meaning because it's doing something. So this afternoon this evening stand at the summit of God's glory and marvel this this is why this is why we've come to this place we come here this afternoon desiring to grow and learn that we might bring glory to the risen king Paul wanted the Ephesians and he wants us to know God and to know him better and to know the blessings of the gospel that we would know the hope that we have been called to that we would know our inheritance and that we would live in the resurrection power. Believers, stand at the summit. See all that you have in Christ. You and I live as dependent men and women. We can't do it on our own and we should never view our service to Jesus as a means. 
Instead, we must grow in our knowledge and marvel at all God has done for us to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. God, you are good and gracious and merciful to us. That you would choose us. That you would redeem us. And that you would seal us saying, this one's mine. That we could image to a broken world the hope of Christ. That we could showcase to a watching world that there is joy even in the midst of sorrow. There is comfort even in the midst of great pain. God, you are enough for us. Would we see this truth, Lord? Would we continue to grow in it? And would we marvel at the goodness given us in Jesus? God, you are so very good to us. I pray, God, now that as we leave this place, we wouldn't just leave the summit. We wouldn't just head on down the mountain and go back to our lives as normal, but we would stop and we would ponder and that we would be in awe of who you are, at your amazing, unbelievable love for us, and that we would sing, that we would proclaim, that we would teach it to our kids, that we would teach it to our significant others, that we tell our roommates, that we would tell the world. Lord, you are so good. We pray all of this with great joy. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.